Welcome to this edition of Code Talk, the concise podcast to help you get to know the National Electrical Code. I'm your host, Frank Seiler, based in Spokane, Washington, and today's episode is Article 230, Service Conductors, Wrapping Up Loose Ends. Well, it's time to wrap up our look at Article 230. If you're just tuning in midstream, the three previous episodes covered Article 230 in general, then separate episodes dedicated to equipment, and also conductors. This time around, we want to touch on a few items that were left undiscussed till now. How are minimum service sizes determined? And then, how are conductor sizes derived from these? Also, we want to give a couple of references for grounding and bonding at the service location to round out the topic. So, how small can we make a service? What are the limitations? Well, really, there are two things that could be asked about here. One, what is the smallest opacity that a service may have? Obviously, it has to be able to carry the load that could be imposed on it. And so, in 230.23a, we find that it says, Conductors shall have sufficient impacity to carry the current for the load as calculated in accordance with Article 220 and shall have adequate mechanical strength. But then the NEC also has some minimum sizes depending on use. We'll get to those in a moment. Secondly, there are minimum physical sizes. So these are sizes from a mechanical standpoint. In other words, these are services that have a minimal load, but the conductor itself has to have a minimum wire gauge to be able to be physically strong enough. And so we find those in 230.23b, minimum size. The conductor shall not be smaller than 8-gauge copper or 6-gauge aluminum or copper-clad aluminum. Then it gives an exception. Conductors supplying only limited loads of a single branch circuit such as small polyphase power, controlled water heaters, and similar loads shall not be smaller than 12-gauge hard-drawn copper or equivalent. And so we'll get to some of those examples also. But as for the first case, once we've determined the calculated load our service is expected to carry, we would select the next higher standard breaker or fuse size, if we don't land on a standard size already with our wire size, as our service size. Now granted, it may not be a common size. So market demands will usually pigeonhole us into more generalized types and sizes. But if you're testing out for the purpose of getting the correct answer on the test, you will want to use the smallest permissible size, even if you would never actually build that in real life. So what do I mean here? Well, for example, say that your building calculates to 133 amperes of load. The next standard breaker size is 150 amps. And that would be your test answer for the service size. And you would size your conductor based on those calculated values. However, it would likely cost you more money to build a 150 amp service 
So given what we know about how big to make our service based on the loads calculated in Article 220, straight supply and the NEC sets some 200 amp services find those in 230.79. In terms of a size, these would apply if we had very little load. That's pretty rare. So 230.79A is entitled One Circuit Installations for installations to supply only limited loads of a single branch circuit. The service disconnecting means shall have a rating of not less than 15 amperes. And 230.79b, two circuit installations. For installations consisting of not more than two two-wire branch circuits, the service disconnecting means shall have a rating of not less than 30 amperes. And so you might ask, where do you have one or two circuit installations for a service? Well, perhaps it's just to provide power for an irrigation time clock or a network repeater for a communications utility somewhere out uh, along the sidewalk, or maybe a freestanding sign where it's impractical to feed it from a structure, or perhaps a parking lot toll dispenser. These are all items that perhaps take one or two circuits and thus to put a, a larger service there just wouldn't make any economic sense. And so there's a provision for one and two circuit installations. 230.79c is entitled One Family Dwellings. And then it says for a one family dwelling, the service disconnecting means shall have a rating of not less than 100 amperes, three wire. And so this would be applicable to individual houses. When it comes to duplexes or multifamily dwellings, usually we have a larger service and then we have feeders into each of the dwellings, and that is not limited to 100 amps. Now, for many years, dwelling units would have around 60 amp meter base and then a six fuse service. You had four Edison fuses at the top and then two fused pullout disconnects at the bottom. And the 1950s, if the house had gas heat, uh, that was usually plenty of energy. It was very sufficient at the time. But rarely does that meet the needs of a modern household. Now, while the code gives a lower limit of 100 amps for a dwelling unit, some local jurisdictions may have a higher threshold. For example, the city of Spokane, where this podcast originates, has a local ordinance, a city ordinance, that the smallest dwelling unit service shall be rated 200 amperes. And so contractors that go out and do a service change, they might pull out 60 amp meter base off the wall. Houses, a thousand square feet has gas heat, and perhaps the load calc is 40 or 50 amps, yet they're required to put a 200 ampere service on the wall. And then 230.79D states all others. So for all other installations, that's not one circuit, not two circuit, and not dwelling unit. All other installations, the service disconnecting means, shall have a rating not less than 60 amperes. And so what would fall into that category? Well, perhaps we've got uh, a pump house in a field for irrigation purposes. And it might have a couple of pumps. It might have a lighting circuit. It might have heaters. So it's more than a two-circuit installation. But if it falls less than 60 amps, our minimum size is still a 60 amp service. And as I mentioned at the outset, chances are that we're never going to build a 60 amp service. We'll probably put a 100 amp service on the wall if it ends up being that little, or 125 amp, just because of what is common in the marketplace. 
but be aware of those four minimum sizes. So once we know what service size we are dealing with, we can select the appropriate conductor. The conductor has to be able to carry the calculated load. And if it does not land on a standard breaker size, we may round that up to the next standard size below 800 amps according to 240.4b. So this is one of the rules that we'll take a closer look at in the next episode because there we'll take a look at overcurrent protection, Article 240. So stay tuned for that. But just for now, we can round up to the next standard size as long as we're below 800 amps. For all non-dwelling services and dwellings above 400 amps, we would normally select our conductor off of table 310.15B16 in the 75 degree column. Now if you're already in the 2020 codebook, the numbering is a little simpler. It's table 310.16. This is the opacity table that has a tab on it if you've tabbed your book. So that's the column that we can use, 75 degrees, along with any derating for numbers of conductors and perhaps temperature derating that we need to do. But apart from those, whatever we find in that 75 degree column will be applicable. However, if we have the full load of a dwelling unit and our service size is between 100 and 400 amps, we can drop down a size. Those conductors can be selected at 83% of the value of the service overcurrent protective device. So in the 2017 NEC, this reference is found at 310.15B7. In the 2020 NEC, the old table that we had in many prior editions has been resurrected. So along with the 83%, the table is also there that gives us sizes from 100 to 400 amps in copper and aluminum for dwelling units. In the 2020 NEC, the reference has been relocated to 310.12. So 310.12a, services, reads as follows. For a service rated 100 amps, through 400 amps. The service conductor is supplying the entire load associated with a one-family dwelling, or the service conductor is supplying the entire load associated with an individual dwelling unit in a two-family or multifamily dwelling, shall be permitted to have an opacity not less than 83% of the service rating. If no adjustment or correction factors are required, Table 310.12 shall be permitted to be applied. So that's the table that we used to have for many years in this section. And uh, then it left. We got the 83% rule. In the 2017 code, the table found its way into Appendix D or Annex D in the back of the codebook. And in the 2020 code, they reintroduced it into the main text. So what does that mean in translation? Well, for dwelling services between 100 and 400 amperes, we drop down a wire size for the same service rating. For example, a 200 ampere commercial service using the 75 degree column in the opacity table gives us 3 aught copper conductor. That's good for 200 amps right on the nose. Now for a dwelling unit, where that conductor carries the full load of the dwelling unit, we're able to size a 200 amp service at 83%. That is 166 amps. So looking at the opacity table, we find 2 watt, good for 175 amps.
So that is our permitted use for that 200 amp service for a dwelling unit. And then the question comes up, why is that? Well, without diving into Article 220 too deeply, we see that for dwelling units, there are two types of calculations that can be made. A standard calculation, as well as an optional one. Usually for smaller houses, the optional calculation comes out quite a bit lower. But in reality, it's still strong. Between 100 and 400 amps, both formulas are on the strong side. So unless you're mining cryptocurrency or you're growing pot under grow lights, your actual demand is far less than the calculated load. Hence the permission to get closer to the demand load with the wire size. We're allowed to drop down a size. Now one last point before we wrap up, and it's a side note here, and it deals with grounding and bonding of the service. And we're going to discuss this in much more detail in upcoming episodes, so hang tight for those. But in a nutshell, grounding is connecting to the earth, and bonding is ensuring a permanent and intentional connection between all non-current carrying metallic paths that are associated with electrical equipment. One of the stated purposes of grounding is to stabilize system voltage under normal operation. The other stated purpose is to provide a path for ground for overvoltages from external sources under abnormal operation. So the neutral conductor that comes from the source utility gets grounded at the service location. Uh, that's why we call it the grounded conductor in the codebook. And generally this is done where our first overcurrent device is located. Now be careful. The code permits this connection to be made anywhere between the service point, that is where the utility wire stops and R starts, and the location of the first overcurrent device. Many textbooks show the grounding done in the meter can, and the NEC does permit this, but most jurisdictions do not. And that's because the meter gets sealed, and then this mechanical grounding connection is not able to be verified down the road. Grounding electrode conductors, that's those going between the service and the earth connection, the grounding electrode, are sized based on table 250.66. Now, while we don't use the grounding electrode system to push current back to the source, uh, the dirt is just way, way, way too resistive. We have to remember that grounding just equalizes voltage. Bonding needs to be able to carry fault current in case one of the hot conductors comes in contact with an enclosure. This bonds the enclosure back to the neutral, and the neutral is the path back to the transformer, back to the power source. So usually this is done with the green grounding screw or bonding strap that comes in the service panel. Also, any metal conduit that is ahead of the service disconnect shall not rely on just back-to-back -back lock nuts for bonding, and we'll have to utilize threaded hubs, a bonding lock nut, or bonding bushing on one side of the raceway. Again, usually the side that you can inspect later. If we have to provide a main bonding jumper or a supply side bonding jumper of the wire type, it will be sized based on table 250-102-C1. Now both of the tables that I just mentioned, table 250.66, and table 250.102C1 
Both of these tables use the size of the service conductor as the reference to determine either our grounding electrode conductor or main bonding jumper size. So it's a sequence. Our load calculation determines our wire size and our service size. Once we have the wire size, we can also apply the grounding and bonding protection rules based on the wire size. Now, if the last little bit here sounded a bit too cursory, I, I agree. It was just an overlook. So check out upcoming episodes on grounding and bonding. We're a few episodes away from that, but uh, they will be posted in a few weeks. In the meantime, be sure to check out Mike Holt's grounding versus bonding video on YouTube. Now, some of the references are to older versions of the NEC, but the electrons don't care about w which version we use. Some terms have been refined. Some methods are described a little bit differently in the 2017 and 20, 2020 editions, but the results are identical. You would not get a different result for grounding and bonding conductors, no matter which edition of the NEC you used. So check it out, and also look around our website for additional content. Thank you again for listening to this episode that wraps up our discussion of Article 230. Next time, we will dive into the topic of overcurrent protection, and we will pull out some of the key provisions of Article 240. As with the last few episodes, this is not a one-episode topic, so we will break Article 240 into some chunks that we can digest one bit at a time. Now, if you found this episode on a site other than our website, please go to www.inw-training.com for the lecture notes. I will try to get them up in the next couple of days, along with some examples that speak to the, the topics that we discussed today. Until next time, this is your host, Frank Seiler, signing off from Spokane, Washington.